of Sassanacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, I'm discussing Season 3, Episode 11, Uncharted. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that no matter where you're listening to this podcast, you can always find the Sassanac Files on a multitude of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Also, if you are not following the Sassanac Files on social media, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassanac Files for all of the latest and greatest Outlander news, including all the latest projects the actors are up to, all the news on book nine of the Outlander series, Go Tell the Beast That I'm Gone, and of course, all of the production news on Outlander season six. Also going on on social media right now, we are working our way through the best episode of season five bracket. We're currently into our Elite Eight, which includes some really great episodes, including Never My Love, The Ballad of Roger Mack, and many, many more. So if you want to have your voice heard, you want to make sure to get over to the Sassanac Files this week to cast your votes. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season three, episode 11, Uncharted. episode kind of like heaven and earth is like it has its bright moments and most of them happen in the back half of the episode so I'm really excited to talk about those but also I have to give credence to the first half and all the things that I like and dislike I'm gonna try to go in chronological order this time just to kind of keep my mind organized but the first thing that I do kind of want to know is that um, Karen Campbell wrote this episode. So I'm kind of noticing a trend in the episodes that I'm not really crazy about. Yeah, so I'm not sure if it's her writing style or what about it exactly it is that I don't like, but I really just kind of felt like this episode hit a bit of a rough patch. It was super slow in the beginning. I felt like all of the survival skills and all of that in the beginning was kind of not necessary. I don't know if any of you guys felt this way, but I felt like having read the books and watching season three, there was so much that happened in the back half of Voyager. And the next two episodes, the Bakra and Eye of the Storm, there is so much happening in those episodes. And it happens really, really quick. Like everything is completely jam packed into it. And I just felt like they could have used some of the time in Uncharted better spent on building up the plots of those two episodes versus trying to cram everything together. And I don't think it comes as new information to anybody that Claire is a very self-sufficient, independent woman. She has survival skills. I mean, we learned all of this about Claire in season one when she was talking about everything that her uncle taught her. So we know she's capable of surviving. And it's like, so why do we need to see all of this. Like we could have cut seven whole minutes out of this episode. Like Father Fogden could have found her stranded on the beach. Like Mama Sita obviously goes to the beach because she saw Jamie and all of the sailors down there. So I just think that time could have been better spent in this episode, but I'm not going to dwell on it too much. The only reason that I bring up Claire's survival skills at all is because one thing that a lot of people question about this episode is why on earth Claire like had the notion to pick up that mirror 
when um, Father Fagnan and Mama Sita were fighting. And honestly, it kind of did make sense, especially with the voiceover. I thought that that really did all the clarifying that you needed in this episode to understand why she picked up the mirror. Because she's like, you know, if they're not going to help me get out of here, then I'm going to have to help myself. And obviously, her being from the 20th century, she's used to the idea of using something reflective to catch the attention of rescuers. That's something that they teach you, you know, um, if you're stuck out in the mountains or whatever in there's going to be an air search for you. They tell you to pick up anything reflective that would catch the eye of the searchers. So I'm sure she's got that kind of thing going on in her head. And obviously it panned out like it wasn't something that I took necessarily as, oh, they just threw that in there as a means to an end for Claire to get Jamie's attention. You know, it was more so a thing like if she had the opportunity to catch the attention of a passing ship, for rescue, that was a good idea for her. And I felt like that was in her head. Like that's what she thought of when she was doing that. And that's also the vibe that I kind of got from the voiceover as well. So just wanted to throw that out there because I know that that's one thing about this episode that people are like, what in the hell? Like, why did she pick that up? That literally doesn't make any sense. Like, oh yeah, I'm just going to steal this random mirror. Like, no, that's not what I thought she was doing at all. So That's kind of where my head was going with that. One of the huge things that is important about this episode is Father Fogden and Mama Sita. It's really interesting because I didn't feel like I was in the minority with how much Father Fogden and Mama Sita kind of annoy me. But apparently a lot of you like them, which is fine. I'm not saying there's a right or a wrong to this. It just kind of fascinates me because... They just seem like surplus characters to me. I know that they're straight out of the books and they're faithfully adapted, but it's just kind of like of all the things that you keep from this book, you kept Mama Sita and Father Fogden, who don't show up in other books at all. It's just like they're here and then they're gone. Honestly, I felt like it was in the writing. It was forced humor a lot of times. Like, yeah, there were a couple of things that made me chuckle, and I'm not going to sit here and say that they were completely stupid. It's just that I felt like the energy into developing their characters could have been better used elsewhere, I guess. Um, But then again, they did need a way to have Fergus and Marsley get married. So here I am just, I'm um, mentally processing on air, but it is kind of interesting that we really do see them through Claire's eyes in this episode a lot, especially when she first wakes up and she's got Mamacita yelling at her in Spanish and she doesn't understand one word that she's saying. And then you've got Father Fogden. You're like, oh, it's an English person. Yay. And then he turns out to be kind of crazy, like talking to coconuts. So you're like, what the hell is happening? You're right there with Claire as she's experiencing all of these things. And it really showcased Claire's ability to adapt to a situation and kind of think out strategy, which I did appreciate about this episode. But more than that, whenever you take a step back and you look at these characters, it's very interesting that at the beginning, Claire is thinking, oh my god, these people are crazy, I need to get away from them as soon as possible. And then by the middle of the episode, before she finds Jamie... She's actually understanding their characters a bit more. She can empathize with them very well. 
you've got the whole argument over dinner where Mama Sita essentially calls Claire a whore and was like, she needs to get the fuck out of here. And Father Fodden is like, don't be rude, you know, but we're like, what the heck? What is going on? These people are psycho. And it turns out that Father Fogden and Mama Sita know each other because when Father Fogden became essentially a missionary on the island of Cuba, he went to spread the word of God and help the poor and all of this. And he met Emenahilda, who is Mama Sita's daughter, and they fell in love. And let me just say that priests falling in love with women is a thing in this series. I did not really notice it that much, but it happens multiple times. That I'm like, what are you trying to say, Diana? <laughs> Seriously. So I did find that a bit intriguing. But overall, the fact that Hilda was married and she fell in love with Father Fogden, who obviously took a vow of chastity as a Catholic priest, and they ran off together with Hilda's mother, Mama Sita to the island of Saint-Domingue, which is where we are for 90% of this episode. (laughs) So all of this happens on the day that the English invade Cuba, which, funnily enough, if you guys have read the Lord John series, (laughs) uh, Lord John is actually in Cuba the day that the English invade. And so while all of this is happening, our own very own Lord John Gray is there And I just, I really do find this very, very fascinating that it all kind of weaves together. And I was in a book club this summer for the Lord John series, and my group leader was like, I kept expecting to see, you know, this boat going off in the sunset with Father Fogden and Amenahilda and Mama Sita, which I would not have put it past Diana. And I'm pretty sure she was like, well, I thought about it, but I just couldn't see how it would make sense. All of these little Easter eggs and just interweaving storylines, it's really, really cool how they do that. But back to the story at hand. So they get to Saint-Domingue and Hilda falls ill and dies. So we've now got Father Fogden and Mamacita living in Saint-Domingue because uh, Mamacita can't go back to Cuba because Hilda's husband was a right ass. I wouldn't put it past him to just, like, kill Mamacita just for the hell of it. And um, I think she probably did feel a little bit of allegiance to Father Fogden, wanted to make sure that he was taken care of. So they just kind of made a home together on Saint-Domingue. So here we are. They've been living there for several years, and in comes Claire and just throws a wrench in the works per usual. So Mamacita's kind of panicking a little bit because in her eyes, nobody could ever replace her daughter and she sees how Father Fogden is behaving towards Claire and she's afraid that Father Fogden is just going to up and forget uh, her daughter and try to be with Claire, that he's obviously trying to keep Claire there. And I don't know whether he's just desperate for company or whether he really does find Claire attractive or what the story exactly is, but Mamacita is very against this. And they have this whole argument at the dinner table. And so after all is said and done, Father Fogden finds Claire and he's like, you know, I'm sorry about the argument, blah, blah, blah. He's like, Mini Hilda was Mamacita's only child. The agony of losing a daughter haunts her still. You can almost see Claire soften in that moment because she gets it. She's lost a daughter and she's forced to live apart from her other daughter. So she really does get Mamacita's pain on a level that many people don't understand. 
And so I think there's that. And then on top of that, she's beginning to understand Father Fogden as well, because he's saying nobody could ever replace Amenehilda when you feel something like that for someone. It doesn't just go away. And Claire gets quite emotional and she's like, I understand. And he sees this and he's like, so you understand you've loved someone so much you would sacrifice everything to be with them. And she says, yes, that's how I feel about my husband and essentially alludes to the fact that you're the reason that I can't be with him. You're keeping us apart. And I think in some respects, he does get it at that point that, oh, well, I wouldn't want to be that person that keeps these two soulmates apart. He's kind of like, you should be reunited then. And then he's like, but I'll consult Coco in the morning. And Claire's like, fuck. It's kind of frustrating in a way because I do understand these characters' plight, Mamacita and Father Fogden, but at the same time, they're just kind of cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, as one of my friends would say. So yeah, they're very interesting. And then to see Father Fogden come back into it at the end, so (laughs) it's almost like proving to Jamie that he's every bit as crazy as Claire says he was. (laughs) It's almost like Jamie's like, let's just go find Father Fogden because I want to see how psycho this guy really is. Um, and I'm pretty sure that it's just the Yupa getting to him. Like, he's smoked one too many pipes of that crap. It's, it's inhabiting his ability to process, clearly. Um, and I love how he's offering it to everybody. He was like, it's really euphoric. It's like he's the constant joint smoker. It's like, bro, this is epic. He does provide quite a few laughs, but um, I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't find him funny, especially in the wedding scene. At the same time, I also do feel a little bit of the whole, like, okay, what's the point of it? So, double-edged sword for Father Fogden, for sure. Overall, I really just want to take a moment to touch on the whole idea of predestination. It's mentioned a few times in the series, not necessarily a lot in the show, more so in the books, because it's a key belief of Scottish Presbyterianism. So I think we may get a little bit more of it in season six, the whole idea of predestination. It really is a running theme almost in this series, because Jamie and Claire constantly, like, they find each other. It's just meant to be, like... Jamie's ship just so happened to crash off the coast of Saint-Domingue where Claire floated ashore after jumping off the ship. Like all of this stuff just so happens to take place and it's it's extremely ironic. And so you kind of have to buy into this idea of things being meant to be for this series to appeal to you, I guess. I do know a couple of people that it's like, okay, it's almost too much. Like there's too much coincidence in this series And so you really just have to kind of throw that all out the window and be like, yes, but it's a part of how this is written. Like things were meant to be or they're not meant to be. And whether you want it to be or not, there it is. I did really kind of feel that a little bit in this episode that there's a lot of coincidences going on. Not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it was kind of blatantly thrown in your face a little bit in this episode. Obviously, the best part of this episode is the second half. I felt like there were almost two completely different acts. The first half, I was like, okay, whatever. And then the second half really saved this episode for me. It's really bizarre. I don't like thinking about Outlander that way. Like, I 
As a fan of the show and of the books, I appreciate them as one cohesive piece. And that is one of the beautiful things about this show is that everything's so well done. It's like, it's like a movie, like a big feature film watching the whole thing through. And that's one thing that I struggle with so much about season three is that it just kind of lost the edge that it had in the first two seasons. And even the first half of season three, like the first half of season three was epic. And then creme de menthe was ew. And then you have first wife and then it kind of falls off again. And it does pick back up steam and like the last half of the penultimate episode of season three. And then I felt like the season finale was pretty good. But these few episodes where they're kind of on their way to Jamaica just really, it makes me kind of grit my teeth. Like it doesn't feel like Outlander to me. And I know by reading some of your comments uh, for the listener thread this week that you guys don't feel this way. And I, I can appreciate that. I think that It's good that not everybody feels this way because I think they would have lost a lot of viewers if the majority of the audience felt like the back half of season three was gross, but also kind of intriguing to me, let's say, to see that you guys don't feel this way about some of these episodes because I really do struggle to get through them most of the time. So the back half of this episode, I absolutely adore primarily because Jamie and Claire are back together. And that is one of the things that I absolutely hate about these, the stretch of episodes is that they're together and then they're apart and then they're together and then they're apart. And I'm like, can they just be together? And so when season four rolled around and they're like consistently together, I'm like, this is refreshing. I love it. (laughs) So Jamie and Claire are back together. There's this beautiful reunion with this swell of music. And I just love Bear McCreary so much. He's a great composer. He really encompasses these characters and the feel of the show. And honestly, I think he's one of the reasons that this show is as successful as it is. I think that composers are highly underrated, but they really do set the mood of a show or a movie, obviously what you feel as a viewer has 90% to do with the actors and the great job that they're doing. But then you've also got the way that it's cut, which is all editing, and you've got the music underneath it, which is, I love the expression, music is how emotion sounds. And so if you don't have the right music, it can impact a scene dramatically. I think the best example of this in Outlander is the scene where Jamie takes a belt to Claire in season one. The music is really lighthearted almost, and it it doesn't give that scene the levity that it needs. Like it makes it funny instead of a very serious thing. And I think that a lot of people have trouble with it. Like I view it as funny, but I think it's 100% because of the music in that, that it sends a signal that that's how we're supposed to be taking this in. So this, the music 100% impacts how great of a show Outlander is for me. All of the emotions that I feel as a viewer are directly impacted by the score that Barry McCreary composes. So I love him and he does some fantastic work. I always buy the soundtracks because I love to listen to them while I work. It kind of relaxes me a little bit. So 
If you don't listen to the score, I highly recommend it. You can find all of them on Spotify if you don't want to buy them. And they're they're fantastic. If you need a little bit of Outlander in your life, but you're not allowed to watch Netflix or whatever while you're working, but you are allowed to listen to music, I 100% recommend listening to the Outlander soundtrack. They have this great reunion on the beach and Jamie says, oh, by the way, I gave my blessing to Fergus and Marsley. And I think Claire is just so surprised by this because when she left Jamie last, he was very set on, you know, they're just not right together. I can't give my blessing to this. They're talking about it fizzling out. He's like, well, I didn't ken what a fizzle is, but I ken your meaning well enough. And so he was really just scared to give them permission because he thought they were too young. They didn't know what they were getting into. Their feelings weren't really where they needed to be. And so this is where he left Claire. And then obviously all the events of heaven and earth happened. And they really proved themselves to Jamie in that episode. And so here's where he gets to explain to Claire that he gave his blessing. And she thinks it's a good idea. I think that Claire is a bit more soft-hearted where that's concerned. But then again, she doesn't view Marsily as her daughter either. So it's easy to kind of see why she doesn't feel as strongly of an objection to it. So she's like, well, I think I know somebody who can help us with that. And in comes Father Fogden again for probably one of the highlights of this episode, which is the wedding. But um, before the wedding, there's this really great scene between Marsily and Claire. And it's one of the jewels of this episode, quite frankly, because it gives us a glimpse of the relationship that Claire and Marsley are going to eventually have. It's one of the all-time best relationships of the show. They don't so much have a great relationship in the books, mainly because Marsley doesn't have as much plot influence in the books as she does in the show. But I really do love that we kind of got a glimpse into who these two women are and that they're kind of tiptoeing around each other. They've gone from straight up hating each other to kind of being civil with each other. And I think Claire making the effort has really softened Marsley a little bit. And she's starting to realize that maybe not all of the bad things that her mother told her about Claire are true. It's just so cute, this conversation that they have where she's saying, well, there's one thing I didn't ken. When I lie with Fergus, how do I not have a bairn? And this is a very serious conversation. And I'm sure that Claire is kind of shocked that Marsley's coming to her with this. But then again, who's Marsley going to talk to? And it's so unfortunate because she's so young and she does know the basics of how things work, which is more than a lot of girls her age know at that point in time. She just wants to know how to not have a child. And it spurs this very interesting conversation where we kind of do get a glimpse into what Jamie and Leary's relationship was. Because we heard from Jamie in First Wife that their relationship wasn't a good one, that she was almost afraid of his touch, and that he felt like she'd been hurt by one of her previous husbands. Um, We find out in season five that that was Joni's dad that was kind of abusive, So Leary had some PTSD from her domestic abuse situation. That's part of the reason that Jamie left her because he just couldn't, he couldn't bear it. 
He loved how it was with Claire just having this wedded bliss scenario where they could be very fond and touchy-feely. Like he is very much a physical touch person in the way of a love language. And so for Leary to constantly be afraid of that physical intimacy, I think really got to him. And obviously it was noticeable enough. Like it wasn't just in his head. Like he wasn't just blowing it out of proportion because it was noticeable enough that Marsley was seeing it and kind of internalizing that and processing it. And so when she's talking to Claire, she says, I saw how it was between uh, my mom and Jamie. Like she would shy away from his touch. But then when I saw you, with him. It made me think that you guys enjoy being together. And I want that with Fergus without having to worry about a baby. And so it was very much a conversation that a daughter would have with a mother. And we see Marsley and Claire's relationship grow by leaps and bounds over the next season or two. But it was really just a very good beginning. And then Claire, she just smiles and she's like, I understand. It's a very modern way of looking at things because birth control was not a thing in the 18th century. And so I think more than anything, it probably shocked Claire that Marshallie was even coming to her with this because not very many young girls want to not have children. It's just accepted that you get married and you're down to business. You start popping out kids and that's just the way it is. And not that Marsley and Fergus don't wait. They don't wait very long, but I think it just shocked Claire more than anything. But she's like, of course, yeah, if this is what you want, obviously you have sound reasons for things and I'll show you how it's done. She doesn't have an issue with that. And I think that's a modern woman's perspective, but it's also a very motherly thing to do that if this is what you want and you've really thought it through, it's not a permanent thing. Like you're not permanently deciding not to have children. So Sure, why not? I'll I'll tell you how to do it. I really enjoyed this scene between Claire and Marsley, very much so. It's probably one of my favorite parts of this episode because I I did feel like it was the beginning of something. And then of course, we see the wedding in all of its fantasticness. Outlander has this way of doing a wedding that is completely different from anything that they've done before or anyone else has done before. And Jamie and Claire's wedding was this this really beautiful thing, but it's its own identity. And we have that same thing with Marsley and Fergus's wedding. It's, of course, Father Fogden is the one marrying them. So, of course, it's not going to be your traditional wedding in any sense. Um, and he tries to marry Marsley to the, I think it's Manzetti is the one that he tries to marry her to. And he was like, um, no. Nope, he's the one that wants to marry her, not me. And then he has the famous line, but he's missing a hand. And will the bride mind? And she's like, uh, no, I will not. And he was like, well, I guess it's not an impediment as long as he's not missing his cock too. (laughs) Fergus, the second time that he mentions it, Fergus just looks at him like if looks could kill in that moment. But it's just kind of funny because Marsley being the witty person that she is, he was like, um, well, is he missing his cock too? And she was like, uh, well, I wouldn't know. But if you'd get on with it, I could find out. And Fergus is like, Marsley. He's like, I'm, I'm sorry, father. She speaks her mind. It's one of the many things I love about her. And I'd never noticed it before. But Jamie just looks at Claire 
And they kind of smile at each other because we know that's one of the things that Jamie loves about Claire as well, that she's not afraid to speak her mind. And it kind of draws him to her. It's very magnetic quality. So I found that adorable. Also very ironic because that's my brother refers to Fergus and Marsley as Jamie and Claire 2.0, that they have this kind of soulmate quality. They're just very lovey-dovey with each other. They're very uh, meant to be so that... They're like, oh, it's one of the many things I love about her. And Jamie and Claire just give each other these knowing smiles. It's it's very affirming to that theory that Fergus and Marsley are and Jamie and Claire 2.0. So they end up getting married. There's a bunch of funny moments. I could go on and on about how hilarious this is. Father Fogden's brain is clearly fried by all that yupa he's been smoking. But, you know, he's asking for their full names. And this is one of the absolutely most touching things of the entire episode is when Fergus is like, well, my name's just Fergus. I don't, I don't have a last name. And Father Fogden's like, but I can't marry you without one. And Jamie speaks up and says, Fraser, Fergus Claudel Fraser. It's one of those moments that will go down in Outlander as one of the most heartwarming things that has ever happened on screen because... I think that that's one of the reasons we had to have the last episode, Heaven and Earth, is to kind of establish this bond that Jamie and Fergus have. That it's not necessarily where it started out when we saw them in season two, where Fergus was viewed as a servant that Jamie had taken under his wing. It's very much a father-son relationship now. And that Fergus was really the only one, the only child in Jamie's life that he had a direct say in how he was raised. He's the only child in this series that is the direct result of Jamie's parental influence. Because, yes, Jamie has sired many children, but Willie was raised by Lord John and Lady Dunsany and Isabel. And Brianna was raised by Claire and Frank. And then Ian, of course, for the most part, was raised by Jenny and Ian. Yeah, Jamie had influence as an uncle, but it was more so like an idolization of Ian mimicking his uncle because he idolized him, whereas Fergus was Jamie's son, heart and soul. So to see that all come to fruition, then in the last episode, Heaven and Earth, Fergus finally stood up to Jamie and became his own man and said, look, I know this is what you want me to do, but I really don't think that it should be done. I'm doing this for you. And I'm doing this for Marsali, and I don't care if you don't like it because it's what's being done. And I think more than anything, that kind of woke Jamie up to the fact that Fergus is his own man and that Jamie did a good job with him, that he instilled his own values in Fergus, but that he can also stand up for what he believes in and do what's right, no matter the pressures coming from the outside world. So. To see all that on top of the fact that he is clearly in love with Marsali and marrying her for the right reasons, I think Jamie just in that moment is like, yeah, he is my son. And 100% he should have my name. And so Fergus, it really touched him in that moment, you can see. And I think that Fergus does struggle with his identity a lot. He wants to know where he came from, just like any adoptive child does. But he doesn't ever take for granted what Jamie has given him. And obviously Claire, too. I mean, she was having her proud mama moment, but she was gone for 20 years of Fergus's life. So um, it is very 
heartwarming to see Jamie and Fergus's relationship bear fruit, so to speak, that he's officially a Fraser. Uh, you can see how happy and almost relieved Marsley is to have that acknowledgement of her her now husband. So it's really great. I really did appreciate that moment so much. It was it was really cute. So we have the wedding and all that that entails, and then we come to the last scene of this episode, which let me tell you is probably one of my favorite sex scenes of this entire series. The one that we affectionately refer to as turtle soup because it's so fun and lighthearted, you know, tipsy sex, and they're just having fun. They're both relieved to be with each other again. Um, it starts out with this adorable little exchange where Claire's like, you know, I need penicillin, but my good arm is kind of injured, so I need you to give me this shot. And he's just so, like, I don't want to do this. He's so reluctant to hurt Claire in any way, even if it's going to help her. And so Claire stabs herself and he just kind of like takes a start. He's like, oh, okay. It was so funny to see him like bracing himself to stab her with a needle. And like the way he was holding that syringe, I was like, that's really going to hurt if he stabs her like that. Like give him some instruction, Claire. I know you're a little bit tipsy, but give him some pointers because that's going to do some damage. Overhand stabbing of a syringe into a thigh just doesn't seem like a good idea. You know, she gets the penicillin injected and all of that, and then come to find out that she's drinking turtle soup, and she's like, (laughs) he's really flirting with her. I mean, yes, he's kind of of two minds about it, I guess you could say, because he doesn't want to presume that she's up for anything, and he definitely doesn't want to take advantage of her or push her because he knows that she's injured. But he's definitely flirting with her. He was like, oh, yeah, you've got your hair down and you're, you know, that's very body behavior. Your nipples staring me in the eyes the size of cherries. And she's like, wow, it's nothing you haven't seen before. (laughs) And he kind of just looks at her like they're very much in this foreplay stage of this relationship. And she was like, (laughs) the... (laughs) Best three words of season three, ladies and gentlemen, is bolt the door. And the amount of t-shirts, gifs, it's everywhere. Bolt the door. But I do love the continued conversation. It's one of the the highlights of this episode. It's honestly what saves it for me. Because I was talking to somebody. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm doing my podcast on Uncharted this week. And they're like, ew. What was the best part of that episode is what they asked me. I said, oh, turtle soup. And they're like, that's in that episode? I said, yeah, at the very end. And they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess if that's in that episode. I love how Jamie is trying to make all of these excuses to downplay it and be like, no, you need your rest. It would hurt your arm. I wouldn't use force on a woman. <laughs> all of these things. And Claire is not having any of it. She grabs him and and, uh, he's like, but you do have a very strong grip for a woman with a fever. Then the funniest part of the entire thing, I think, was when he said, this must be what it's like making love in hell with a she-devil. I mean, hey, if you're going to be in hell, you might as well make love with a she-devil, right? But then Willoughby shows up and, you know, they're getting down to business. They're enjoying themselves and, you know, tension release, right? Because they've been through a lot in the past couple of episodes. And here Willoughby is just knocking on the door like, hello, did you enjoy your dinner? And they're like, go away, Willoughby. And Claire's like, but I want more soup. 
<laughs> oh boy. I love how he can hear clearly what's going on in that room and he just kind of smiles to himself and walks away. <laughs> like he knows he did his job serving his aphrodisiac soup full of sherry to Claire. <laughs> You're welcome, Jamie. Anyway, so yes, I absolutely love that scene. It does definitely make my top five sex scenes of the show. So that about sums up what I have to say about this episode. I didn't really have a quote of the episode or a performance of the episode this week. It was kind of one of those episodes where I just kind of sat back and took it in and really thought about some of the better parts of this episode and didn't really have anything stick out to me as far as performance or quotes go. But I did remember to put out the listener thread this week, guys. So I'm going to read what a few of you had to say about 311 Uncharted. Tammy Golder Condon said, Was Father Fogden the one that kept asking about pieces of anatomy that Fergus might or might not possess? If so, he was freaking hilarious in a gem of an addition. His part in the book is even funnier. I don't really remember him in the books that much, to be honest, but I'll take your word for it, Tammy. He did definitely have the majority of the funny parts. I think he was just there for comic relief. Like I said in the episode, I do think that if push came to shove, they probably could have cut out his character, but I'm glad that they kept him in. It definitely kept things lively. Angela Hickey says, for me, it was too much super Claire versus jungle and crazy and not enough Jamie especially following the previous Super Claire episode. Very typical of Tony Graffia, but not a bad episode. Just not my favorite. I know some people loved it, though. I know, Angela. I was not a big fan of this episode either. But yeah, some people really do love it. And I honestly think that it's because of the back half of this episode. Because like I said, with the scene with Claire and Fergus and Marsley's wedding and the Jamie and Claire sex scene... All of that was really good stuff. It was just the first half of the episode that threw me off. Did have a lot of Super Claire versus Jungle, which is funny because that's kind of Karen Campbell's thing. Just like Claire being a strong, independent woman. I mean, we see her. She wrote Creme de Menthe and she wrote Do No Harm in season four. And those both have a very strong, like strong, independent woman vibe. So I think it's just the writer, honestly, that, that creates these conundrums. Last but not least is Joan Cohen writing in for the wrap up. She says, once again, valuable time was wasted. I could have done with a lot less of Claire's journey, not to mention snakes and ants. Father Fogden was a great character, eccentric, but not campy. And Mamacita was terrific with her death stare. But we probably could have done with a bit less of their story too, especially as they're one-off characters. Side note, I know DG named the character after a friend, but Fogden sounds like fogged in, a good way to describe him. <laughs> the writing was very uneven, like the clunky dialogue between Jamie and Fergus about the shipwreck and the cliched reunion on the beach, although Leslie's line, McDo's wife turns up in the most unlikely of places, made me laugh. See, that was one of those moments that I felt like it was forced humor. Um, the interaction between Leslie and Hayes on the beach, I was like, what are we doing? It was one of those moments where I really felt like they were trying too hard to replicate what they had with Rupert and Angus in the first two seasons. So that's one of the things that I'm going to have to disagree with you about, Joan. But Joan continues to say, we barely got a mention of young Ian, too. The whole reason for them going to the Indies in the first place. On the other hand, I'm happy we got to have the scene between Claire and Marsley. 
It's lovely to see the first glimmer of their relationship that will help fill the void of the daughter and mother they are missing. The wedding was pretty hilarious, but the best moment was Jamie giving Fergus his name. The joy that radiates from Fergus when he realizes Jamie has truly claimed him as his son gives me all the feels. It was also great to see Jamie and Claire reconnect in the iconic turtle soup scene. They deserve a lighthearted romp for once. Absolutely. I agree with all the rest of that comment, Joan. 100%. That about wraps up this episode, guys. I do want to remind you, as I said in the announcements at the beginning of this podcast, we are working on our season five best episode bracket. So make sure you head over to Facebook or Instagram to cast your votes there. We're going to be starting on the Elite Eight this weekend. So also we're down to the last two episodes of season three. We've got um, the Bakra next week, which got some returning faces. So that'll be interesting. And then um, the week after that, we've got the season three finale, which is Eye of the Storm, which is also a really good episode for me. So wrapping up season three really strong. And then during the break, we've got a couple of guest appearances for you guys. We're going to be talking about our season three superlatives. So Rebecca is coming back to chat about that. And then I'm having a friend come on so we can discuss all the good stuff about season six in the interim between season three and season four analysis. So lots of good stuff coming down the pipe. I'm excited to chat with you guys about it. As always, if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any previous episode of the Sassnack Files, feel free to reach out to me on social media or via my email address, which is thesassanacfiles at gmail.com. And I would be happy to chat some Outlander with you guys. With these live events getting ready to come up in the next month or so, make sure you head over to the Sassanac Files and join my private group, which is TSF Obsassanacs. That's where all of these Facebook Lives will be taking place. So if you would like to join us for the discussion, please feel free to go over there and join the group. Make sure you fill out all of the entry questions and agree to follow the rules or your application will not be approved by the admins. So hope to see your guys' applications soon. And next week, like I said, we're going to be talking 312 the Bakra, and I will see you guys then. So until then, stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye. Bye.